going to um, finish up tonight. I know that the board has shifted a little bit. You may not be able to see it all um, from where you're sitting, but in the morning, we're going to take a real quick moment to tie it all together. I'm not going to take the time to rehearse it and review it because we want to make sure you have a little bit of time for your D groups before um, you you have to go to bazooka ball and such. So we're just going to dive right into our last point that we're looking at on this chart. And that's the one we've all been anticipating, right? The reality that when we are born, when we're born into this life, we know that there is a lot of joy surrounding that birth. But with that joy that surrounds the birth, we also have the sobering reality that at some point that child is going to face pain. That child is going to face sickness and eventually uh, death. There's a 100% mortality rate for us all, isn't there? And we're... We're looking at that joyful birth, but knowing that at some point there's going to be sickness, pain, and death. In the spiritual realm, it doesn't rescue us from that reality, does it? When we are born again, we will also face spiritual trials. We'll face spiritual temptations. Sometimes we'll face spiritual sickness and sin. And eventually we will all also physically die. And I want us to talk tonight about the, the loss. How do, we, how do we look at loss in the family, the family of God? How do we deal with loss in the family of God? How do we deal with impending loss when we all know that we're going to be facing death, when we're going to be facing trials, when we're going to be facing temptation, when we're going to be dealing with and battling sin? First of all, let's think about trials before we get into our text. When when we enter into this spiritual life, we deal with trials. And often these trials meet us at the low point. Remember, this is Sanctification Road, and and that road's not a straight line. It's got some low spots. It's got some high spots. When we get to these low spots and we're in trials and, and we're struggling in our spiritual walk, how do we deal with that kind of pain? How do we deal with that kind of issue? How do we deal with spiritual trial when we're in the spiritual lows on Sanctification Road, when we're in the valleys of Sanctification Road, well, that is where the children, the young men and the young women, and the older men and the older women that make up the body of Christ pull us back up and help us get up to the high points again in life. And, and after that, there's usually another low, right? And we have to depend on one another. God has put in place... Not only the Spirit within us, not only the Scriptures, but He's put in place the saints of God who help pull us along when we can't pull ourselves along. They help lift us up when we can't lift ourselves up. They help bring us through trials when we can't bring ourselves through those trials. It's God's design. But then there's some of us who are like myself and hard-headed, and we sometimes take a right turn off of Sanctification Road. Or we take a left turn off of Sanctification Road, and we get into sin, do we not? And when we get into sin, the Holy Spirit of God is there to convict us of our sin. And some of us who are smart, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, we are quick to confess, we're quick to repent, and we are quick to turn back around and get back on sanctification road, right? Some of us ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit at times when we get into sin and then He begins to discipline us. He begins to orchestrate things in our lives that He intends to get our attention, not to condemn us, but to discipline us and chastise us back on the safe road. Sometimes 
We're so hard-headed that we ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we ignore the discipline of the Holy Spirit and again, we have to rely on the saints of God. We have to rely on the saints of God to rescue us. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a story and He tells His disciples, if your brother sins against you, then you go to him and you talk to your brother about that sin and if he repents, you've won your brother. So when we get off of the the beaten path, so to speak, when we get off of the straight and narrow and we begin to fall into sin, we need to rely on other believers to stop us, to put up an obstacle and to say, you're getting off the path. You're getting off the straight and narrow and you need to repent and you need to come back. And if they say yes, we celebrate. It's great news. If they say no, what does Jesus say? He says, you go and take two or three others with you and you go back to that person and you show them their sin. And if they repent and they get back on the straight and narrow, that's great news. If they don't, then what do you do? You go tell the church. And you tell the church that this person is in sin and they're rejecting your admonition. They're rejecting you and your friend's admonition. And then the whole church begins to go to them and plead with them to reconcile themselves to God, to repent of their sin, to get back on the path. And sometimes through that process, when it happens, as rare as it is in our churches today, sometimes through that process, when this happens, they ignore the the. The intervention of the one, they ignore the intervention of the two or three, they ignore the intervention and the hope of reconciling them from the whole church. And what does Jesus say about that person? He says you can treat them like a tax collector because they have given evidence that they're not as children. They have, they have shown through their refusal to repent and return that they were never children of God. So let me tell you, there's something, something about Sanctification Road that you should notice. It's got some highs. It's got some lows. It's got some right turns into sin. But all of those errors keep pointing towards what? Glorification. We may have some lows and we may have some highs and we may have some detours, but we keep moving in this direction towards glorification. There is sometimes, though, people who appear to have experienced new birth People who appear to be part of the family of God. People who appear to be on sanctification road. People who fall into sin. They're approached by one. They're approached by a few. They're approached by the church. And they just refuse to repent. And instead of getting back on sanctification road, they go back to the world. What does the Bible say about those people in 1 John 2, 19? They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. These people weren't Christians who lost their way and lost their salvation and abandoned the faith. These people may have thought they were Christians, but true Christians persevere unto the end. Because they have fallen out and they have gone back to the world and they have rejected repentance, They've rejected Christ. They give evidence that they were never part of the family of God. These are all losses that we can experience in the family of God. The the suffering and the hardship of trials. The suffering and the hardship of temptation and sin. The suffering and hardship of seeing someone who we had confidence in walk away from the faith. 
regardless of the ups and the downs and the details, we all are going to face death, are we not? We're all going to face death. And the question I want us to focus on tonight is not the trials and how to make it through those and not sin and how to reconcile a sinner to the family of God, not the apostate who walks away from the faith, but I want to talk to us all about what we're all going to face, and that is death. How do we, as Christians, as part of the family of God, how do we deal with the looming threat and the looming reality that every one of us in this room is going to die? We're going to be placed in a coffin. and The lid is going to be sealed. And we're going to be lowered into the ground. And we're going to be covered with six feet of dirt. That's where we'll lie until Jesus returns. That's where our bodies will lie until Jesus returns. How do we deal with that reality? If you look in Hebrews chapter 2, and let's begin in verse number 14, we're going to see how to handle death in the family, even our own deaths well, as we understand death as Jesus understands it. In verse 14, we're going to see, first of all, that Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to die. You took on flesh and blood against your will. You had nothing to do with it, right? You took on flesh and blood. Your mom and daddy caused you to be here. You had no say-so in the matter. But Jesus took on flesh and blood... In order to die. Verse 14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death. We are children made of flesh and blood. We are characterized by mortality, not immortality. We are characterized by a perishable body, not an imperishable body. And and Jesus took on this mortal, perishable body body when He came to earth. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was not flesh before He came to earth. He existed, but He was not flesh. And because He was not flesh, He could not die. But He took on flesh. He took on mortality. He took on this perishable body simply for the purpose of dying. How many of us would have signed up for this deal? if we knew that death was waiting on us at the end. Jesus did. He took on flesh and blood in order to die. Secondly, if we look again in verse 14, we see that Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to destroy. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death. So Jesus took on flesh, He took on mortality, He took on a perishable body so that He could die, but not just die and come to an end. He took on all of this body so that He could die, and so that through that death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death. Who is it that has the power of death? The author of Hebrews is glad we ask. He gives us the answer right there at the end of verse 14. That is the devil. The devil's power is death. And the devil's trump card over us is death. 
He hangs it over our head all the time. When a close friend, roughly our age, passes away, the anxiety increases because we know it could have been us. He's just hanging that, he's just hanging that trump card over our head saying, I will lay it down. As soon as I get the permission from the Lord, I'll, I'll lay it down. I want to kill you now. He wants to kill us all right now. He wants us all to fear death right now, but Jesus came and took on flesh and took on mortality and took on a perishable body so that He could die in order to destroy the power of the devil. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And what is the devil's greatest work? It is death. Through Jesus' death, He destroyed the devil by overcoming the devil's one, one lethal weapon the looming fear and anxiety and reality that we are all going to die. Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to die, in order to destroy. He took on flesh and blood in order to deliver us. I don't like alliterated sermons, but when it happens, it just happens. I didn't try too hard, trust me. He took on flesh and blood in order to deliver us. What did he Take on flesh and blood to deliver us from? From the fear of death. Look back in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now think about this. Jesus came to deliver us who were subject to lifelong slavery. How are we made subject to this life sentence of slavery? Through fearing death. Living in fear of the looming shadow of death is paralyzing. It is enslaving. It is life-wasting. Some of us are so paralyzed by the thought of death, here's what we do. We escape We live in a culture now where we don't have to think about hard things anymore. We don't have to think about difficult things anymore. We don't have to ponder deep things anymore. All we have to do is reach in our pocket and pick up a phone and we immediately escape into a virtual land, a social world that's not social at all, but that is just an escape. We don't have to think anymore. You can turn on the television. Studies have shown that our brains are less active when we're watching television than they are when we're asleep. That's why we call it vegging in front of the television. That's why it feels so relaxing because our brains are literally shut off. We can just escape into this unreality TV world. Anytime anything serious crosses our mind, we just open up Facebook and give it a scroll, or Instagram, or TikTok, and on and on and on. Anything but silence, anything but aloneness, anything but contemplation, anything but facing head on our reality and our anxieties. And we think it's an escape, but what it is is Satan using our fear and anxiety over death to trap us in a virtual world where we don't deal with issues. And we're enslaved. Some live enslaved to a constant fear of death because of the judgment to come. They don't have peace with God. They don't have assurance of their salvation. They wrestle with doubt. They're afraid that when they die, that they're going to be judged. So they fear. 
Some aren't necessarily fearful of death, they're just afraid of dying, so they are constantly on WebMD. And they move from WebMD, WebMD to the organic sites to find out what kind of organic food they can eat to correct the problem that they found they might have on WebMD. And they Google and they blog and they search and they spend their lives trying to live another day. They're just caught in this hamster wheel of anxiety trying to stay alive. Trying to live another day. Let me just, can I do a sidestep right here? Manny's saying no, don't do a sidestep. I'm doing a a sidestep anyway. Here's the sidestep. The sidestep is we are living in a a society that thinks if we can just get back to all natural, everything's going to be healthy and wonderful. Can I just burst that bubble for you? You get back to all natural, perfectly organic, all natural. You're only going to drink H2O. You're only going to eat what's grown without any preservatives, any any mechanical fertilizer. We are 100% organic. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to die. Let me tell you why you're going to die. Because natural has been tainted with sin, just like the Garden of Eden was tainted with sin when Adam fell. We want to be in Eden. We want to go back to that natural, but we, you, you can do all the natural you want and you're still going to get sick and you're still going to die because the natural's been affected by sin and now all creation's groaning out, waiting for the return of Christ. That's just a sidestep for those of you who are stressing and always trying to find some way to get back to natural and so you can live forever. You're not going to live forever. What you're going to do is linger another day scrolling online articles instead of living today for the kingdom of God. And Satan wants to enslave us by our fear of death forever, but Jesus came to deliver us from this lifelong slavery. He came to deliver us from the fear of death. Why does Satan want to enslave us to a fear of dying? And why does Jesus want to free us from a fear of dying? Why this tug of war with our emotions? Let me tell you why there's this tug of war with our emotions. Because if you weren't scared to die, you would be unstoppable. And I would be unstoppable. Elizabeth Elliot said, I have one desire now. To live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord, putting all my energy and strength into it. Or as Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Imagine what your life would be like if you had no fear of death. Instead of living our lives with reckless abandon, with no fear of dying, we waste our lives trying to live. Or we waste our lives worrying and crippled with fear. Or we waste our lives trying to escape the reality and then we die. we try to avoid the inevitability of death, we waste every day. And thus, practically, eternally, we may as well not be alive. Practically, eternally, we may not be, as well be alive. Mark 8, 35, Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. It's going to get better, just bear with me. Jesus came to deliver us from a fear of death, from a 
paralysis of anxiety over death. He also came to free us from sin and the grave. From the penalty of sin and the, and the permanence of the grave. Back to verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He took on flesh and blood not only to deliver us from the fear of death, but also to deliver us from the penalty of sin and the permanence of the grave. How does He release us and free us from the penalty of sin? He went to the cross to be our propitiation. He took our place, our penalty on the cross. He paid it in full. You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to do any penance. It's been paid in full. It is Finished. And death is not the end for those who are in Christ because not only did He die on the cross for our sins, but He rose from the grave, the first fruits of those who were asleep, with the promise that the grave will not be permanent. But there'll be a resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-26 But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits... After that, those who are Christ's at His coming. Then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Jesus took on flesh and blood to die so that He might destroy the devil and so that He might deliver us from being paralyzed by fear of death that He might deliver us from the penalty of our sin, and that He might deliver us from the permanence of the grave. Aren't you thankful when they put you in that coffin and they close the lid and they sink you down in that ground and cover you up with six feet of dirt, that that is not the end? That's not your final resting place as we see sometimes on graves. You say, okay, that's all good. good. Good stuff to preach but I'm not really ready to relinquish my life right now. I'm not really sure I'm, I'm ready to relinquish my fear, my, 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 my pseudo-control over, over my life. Is there help for me as I struggle? Again, the author of Hebrews is glad we asked, because if you look in verse 18, he says, For since he himself was tempted... In that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I'm going to say something else that's probably not kosher in the commentaries. I don't know, I haven't read them, but as I read this and I look at what's being discussed, it seems to me that the temptation that Jesus is suffering is not necessarily referring to the temptation in the garden or in the wilderness, but it's a temptation... In the garden. It's not the temptation in the wilderness, but it's the temptation in the garden where he is being tempted to fear 
death. He's sweating great drops of blood. He is praying, let this cup pass from me. And it seems as though Satan is right there just saying, you can stop this. You can stop this. You can avoid death. Aren't you afraid, Jesus? Aren't you afraid that you're going to die? You're going to get put in that tomb and you're going to get abandoned there by your father. You can avoid it all right now. And Jesus pushes through and he says, oh, no, I will not fear. How does Jesus help us when we are tempted to circle the wagon of this life in dread of the inevitable? He went first. Get on that wet willy slide out there at Shaco Springs and your little chicken and your 10-year-old kid goes first. Going down, aren't you guys? Going to have a procedure done at the hospital and you're anxious. You have a friend who just went through the same procedure. You're not chickening out, are you? You're going through with it. Well, our elder brother in the family faced death first. He went first. And on the cross, he suffered and he bled and he died to purchase our pardon, to redeem us from our sin, to release us from the penalty of our sin, to release us from judgment for our sin. And He was buried in a borrowed tomb and we know that He rose from the grave. We can have courage because Jesus faced the temptation to fear and He went first. And when we signed up for this life, when we signed up to be part of this Family, we agreed to follow Him, did we not? And does that not include death? I mean, if we have heard, believed, and embraced the gospel, if we have Christ, we have been set free from a lifetime of slavery through fear of death because we've already said we are willing to die. Luke 9, 23, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, Follow me. We know what those disciples thought when Jesus said, take up your cross. It would be like me saying to you, take up your lethal injection and follow me. Take up your electric chair and follow me. Jesus says you have to do it every day because we're going to leave this room tonight. Yeah, man, I'm I'm over it. And in the morning we're going to wake up and go, I'm scared again. I'm anxious again. That's why Paul said he died daily. Because Jesus said, pick up your cross daily. Face death daily. Contemplate death daily. Overcome the fear of death daily, knowing that our elder brother has already gone through this. And not only did he go through death, but he came out on the other side with the promise that we would come out with him. We need to adjust our focus. We need to take our eyes off of this world and put it on the world to come. We take our eyes off of the temporal and put, it on, put them on the eternal. We take our eyes off of the fear and put it on the promise. We take our eyes off of the perishable and we put them on the imperishable. We take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on to Christ. Where are you looking? If you are paralyzed by a fear of death, if you are paralyzed by the penalty of your sin, if you're paralyzed by concern over the permanence of the grave, you're not looking at Jesus. You're looking in the mirror. Where are you looking? Where are you focusing? We begin to get anxious over death. We most often 
want to look back to the cross. And that's good. But I want to propose to you that the early church spent less time looking back to the cross. They did look back to the cross. They, they remembered the cross. They preached the cross. But in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their tests, they spent less time looking back to the cross and looking forward to the resurrection. And that is why the early church was accused of turning the world upside down because they weren't looking back or around. They were looking ahead. That's why Paul impacted virtually the entire Roman Empire because he wasn't looking back or around at his circumstances, but he was looking ahead in faith at the promise. They were so focused on their future with Christ, in their future glorified bodies, in their future eternal home that this life and this body and this world and any fear of death faded from view. We have to learn to focus on the future resurrection to get beyond this line of death and get to this line of glorification. I mean, let's just skip death. If you could just skip death and say, all right, tonight I think I want to step into glorification. Would you be afraid? I just want to see Jesus' face and be like Him tonight and skip death. Would you be anxious? Stop looking at death and start looking at what's to come. Start looking at glorification. 1 John 3, remember we looked at this the other night. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him, purifies Himself just to see His peer. They were so focused on their future with Christ and their future glorified bodies and their future eternal home that this life and this body and this world and any fear of death faded from view. Our elder brother went first. We signed up to follow him. Let's look beyond death and look to glorification. Let's look beyond death and look at a resurrection when this perishable body will put on imperishable and this mortal body will put on immortality and this flesh will be glorified. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-57 Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our elder brother went first. Let's look to the future resurrection. Let's look to our glorification. Let's look past the pain and the suffering and the death and look to the future. What is our hope in life and death? It's Christ alone. 
Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ, He lives. Christ, He lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with Him. And we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Amen. Father, we thank You for the resurrection. We thank You that You went first. You conquered death, you conquered hell, you conquered the grave so that we can go without fear, with hope and confidence that you will not abandon us to Sheol, but you will resurrect us on the last day and glorify us and we will live and reign with you for all eternity. Christ is our hope in life and may be our hope in death. In Jesus' name.